to New England Climate Conversations, the podcast all about the impacts of climate change and how we can make a difference. I'm your host, Owen, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dean, Luna, and Corbin. Unfortunately, our planned guest for this episode, Dale, was unable to join us this time around. We hope to have him on next week. So, on this episode, we'll be talking about the effects of climate change on agriculture, food security, and droughts and water access. But first, let's begin with the Climate Bites. For those tuning in for the first time, Climate Bites is our rapid-fire segment about recent major climate events. I'll turn it over to Luna to start. According to the Cardiology Medical Journal Circulation, research is indicating an increase in cardiovascular-related deaths from extreme heat events in the U.S. Currently, the rate is projected to double. Lead study author Sami Katana, assistant professor of medicine at University of Pennsylvania, states that more aggressive climate change remediation policies are needed to curb the effects of the world's cardiac health. Benchmark data aggregated showed that greater numbers of extreme heat days are linked to more cardiovascular deaths. Here is a grim statistic from the analysis. Quote, Even if currently proposed reductions in greenhouse gases emissions are fully implemented, Excess cardiovascular deaths due to extreme heat are projected to be 162% higher in the middle of the century compared to the 2008-2019 baseline. There are some marked differences among the populations with regards to these impacts. Black residents are at risk of higher rates of disease and death. They tend to have less access to cooling solutions, less tree cover, fewer air-conditioned units and housing, and increased vulnerability to the heat island effect. Pollution in the form of particulate matter also figures greatly into these extreme heat-related deaths. More on that in future episodes. This is Luna with New England Climate Conversations Climate Bites. Back to you, Corbin. Storm Kieran ripped its way through most of Europe with a whopping 100 mile per hour winds that left 12 dead and millions without power. Almost more than 8 inches of rain rainwater swept through Europe, causing flash floods, car crashes, and even bridge collapses. Over 10,000 rescue calls were made, and the wind reached approximately 137 miles per hour in northern France. As of November 7th, 2023, China has announced that they have a new methane gas reduction plan set in place after the 2021 plan in Beijing failed to come to fruition. Uh, currently, the U.S. and 150 other countries have committed to cutting down methane gas emissions by as much as 30% by as early as 2030, which China had not joined in on. China makes up roughly 60% of their power by burning coal, making it one of the biggest producers of greenhouse gases. China plans on reducing its coal usage so they may have a positive effect on the greenhouse gases they emit. And for our final climate bite this week, uh, the 5th Annual UN Climate Conference, the COP28, will be occurring from November 30th to December 12th of this year. So uh, th- this, um, it's actually the fifth annual UN Climate Conference, is going to be addressing concerns of indigenous populations and is also going to con- tr- continue to come up with solutions for humanity to address climate change. They're going to be focusing on four paradigm shifts, fast-tracking the energy transition and slashing emissions before 2030, transforming climate finance by delivering, an old, on, delivering on old promises and setting the framework for a new deal on finance, putting nature, people, lives, and livelihoods at the heart of climate action, and mobilizing the most inclusive uh, COP ever. And I suppose we will see in the coming weeks whether or not these goals come to fruition. Well, in the previous episode, episode three, we explored the extreme weather effects of climate change, how they cause wildfires, and all that good stuff. But we're going to take some of the things from that episode to their logical conclusion now and talk about, among other things, the effects that climate change has on agriculture specifically and what this may mean for you. 
My colleague Luna will elaborate on some more specific effects of the impact on the food supply in just a little bit. So the effects of climate change on the wheat and maize crops could be felt as early as 2030 and as late as 2070, but the devastation will be the same. A new NASA study published in the journal Nature Food found that as early as that 2030 point, we could see maize yield decrease, decreases of up to 24%, while wheat yields may temporarily, and I cannot stress enough that this is temporary, and also comes with some caveats, increase by up to 17%. The same study projects a 40% or larger decrease in yields by 2070 in many parts of the world. The entire eastern half of the United States, much of Central America, parts of South America, China, India, Africa, Southeast Asia, and the few parts of the Arabian Peninsula capable of growing anything at all, um, mostly the southwestern and northeastern parts, will be, the, will, be, will be the areas affected. So before we get to those long-term decreases in yield, you know, as we're currently seeing an increase, then, I mean, at least we're, we're in the green right now, right? Well, you're kind of right, but those caveats I mentioned are quite significant. You know, something to consider is that even though it may increase yields for certain crops, due to the additional sunlight and uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right, because crops need time to grow, store energy, develop, you may end up, you may end up with higher yields than only of lower nutrient content, but um, plants themselves that end up producing less total grain. Um, so the agricultural system, being an extremely complex and interconnected one, has other issues to deal with other than purely, numerical, purely numerically decreased yields, excuse me. Growing seasons themselves will change due to increased heat messing with the seasons. Climate change also brings entirely different rainfall patterns to the table, not only affecting the Southeast Asian monsoon season, which is a huge food security problem by itself, as this affects the livelihoods of over a billion people working in agriculture, um, but making extremes of precipitation more likely and further impacting crop yields. Other factors that will also affect agriculture include increased insect population and other crop pests, more weeds, and an increased number of diseases. Remember when the chestnut blight killed 4 billion trees in North America alone in the first half of the 20th century? No? Well, you'll become a lot more familiar with it and associate a nasty fungal crop infections as the warmer temperatures increase the, spe increase the spread of them, having a yet unspecified but certainly devastating effect on crops. Naturally, climate change will also affect any agricultural practices related to animals as well. Animal health, growth, and reproduction are all sensitive to changes in temperature. A very revealing article from the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency notes that increased deaths from heat stress, lower production of poultry and bovine products, slower weight gain for all animals, and generally decreased reproduction are all to be expected from climate change. The article draws a particular note to hogs, where heat stress reduces appetite, breeding, gestation, and lactation, with heat-related causes already costing the U.S. swine industry more than $300 million annually, with costs sure to increase in the future. You said that's from Minnesota specifically. How relevant is that to the rest of the country or the world in general? Um, well, I would say it's pretty relevant, Owen, because as usual, climate change isn't the only thing impacting agriculture that humans do. It's a bit of a two-pronged attack on agriculture. Anthropomorphic climate change exacerbates agricultural issues already created or made worse by so-called industrial amplifiers, uh, according to an article published by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Industrial amplifiers, of which three are listed in the article, degraded soils, simplified landscapes, and intensive inputs, are practices intentionally executed by the factory farming industry that exacerbates the problem that agriculture has due to climate change. Simplified landscapes, for example, the term for the lack of biodiversity over large swaths of land that occurs in factory farming due to industry practices, 
leaves crops highly vulnerable to disease, insects, and specific crop yield issues. Intensive inputs, on the other hand, which is the term for the necessity of using larger and larger amounts of pesticides and harsh chemicals in response to increased insects and accelerated erosion, causes pollution downstream via flooding, which is a yet another more common negative effect of climate change, and could also um, cause more water usage by desperate farmers. Many of these are global practices, especially with a smaller percentage of humans being involved in agriculture than at any other point in human history. Um, and these are just some of the many ways that climate change will impact human agriculture. As you can see, when it comes to this topic, everything is interconnected and has a rather unfortunate negative ripple effect on everything else. Imbalanced monsoons due to climate change, crop failure and livelihood risk. Farmers use more pesticides in response to soil erosion caused by factory farming. More soil erosion, which increases drought and insect populations, which creates a nasty positive feedback loop of playing catch-up with crop yields and protective measures. Uh, what about generally increased carbon dioxide emissions? Well, more heat and carbon dioxide in the ocean and atmosphere, which not only jeopardizes the seafood industry due to ocean acidification, but it also affects crop quality globally. The point is that climate change is already affecting agriculture, and the more devastating effects will likely be realized by the end of the century unless we quickly change course. And with that, I'll pass it off to my colleague Luna. Forget the compost heap. Where are those banana peels going? The landfill, if we're using polite terms, is the destiny of a disturbingly large amount of food, the vast majority being perfectly sound to eat. That waste starts further up the lifespan chain than most of us assume. It starts at the farm. Most of us think about restaurants and grocery stores filling pallets of bread into dumpsters one day after that arbitrary sell-by date. When we think of food waste, however, a systemic approach requires us to travel further up the supply chain and produce food products. Right at the point of sale, 45% of food goes uneaten. In the worst case, envision coming back from the grocery store and immediately throwing away almost half of what you just purchased right into the trash. Let's step back and take a brief look at how much is lost before transport vehicles even leave the farm. Market conditions can make it so that farmers see no incentive to continue passing through fields and orchards to harvest additional food. Labor shortages, reducing the amount of manpower put to work, results in more food being unpicked, which fills a feedback loop of profit loss and unwillingness to revise labor and environmental goodness practices. In a later episode, I will be uncovering global markets as they contribute to food waste and climate change, as this segment of food production is a massive entanglement of mismanagement and antipathy towards life. So, how much waste are we looking at, Luna? The Environmental Protection Agency estimated that each year U.S. food loss and waste exceeds more than 170 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent GHG emissions, rivaling that to the emissions of 42 coal-fired power plants. That's not including the methane emissions decomposing in landfills, everyone. So we're looking at a massive and largely unseen problem if we're focused on the stuff we see in dumpsters behind the Duncan. Keep in mind, it's not just having enough food, but ensuring that food satisfies that person's health needs. Food security is just one moving part of this conundrum. One estimate from the Harvard School of Public Health puts the amount of produce food product going uneaten at 40%. Uneaten food in the U.S. can feed more than 150 million people a year, far exceeding the amount of food insecure persons, estimated at 35 million individuals. Since Maine holds the largest share of food insecurity, the rest of this piece will highlight the state's food insecurity landscape, and shortly after, some community-based initiatives in place for remediation. And now for some numbers to put the problem to perspective. More than 200,000 Mainers are food insecure, putting the state at an unhappy first place in the region's food security ranking. 
More than one in five children in Maine are food insecure. More of Maine's residents are eligible for SNAP benefits than any other part of New England. Piscataquis County, Maine has the highest child food insecurity rate, 28%, as well as the highest child poverty rate, 30%. Many jobs, those that came back after the pandemic anyway, were replaced with lower wage and inconsistent job security. In other words, tourist industry jobs. One look at the problem is the Good Shepherd Food Bank, a Maine-based hunger relief nonprofit. The organization, which serves all 16 counties in Maine, facilitates programs which include distributing goods to food pantries. They have distributed more than 25 million meals across Maine. Everyone at the Table, Ending Hunger by 2030, is the name of the plan outlined in 2019's 129th Maine Legislature. It outlines five strategic goals to address hunger, which includes closing the equity gap in household food insecurity by addressing underlying social inequities with a tactic of respond and prevent. The plan identified the causes or drivers, limited household resources, limited community resources, and high cost of living. Furthermore, food insecurity, aka hunger and malnutrition, feel a process of chronic disease and social instability. The cost of status quo, in other words, not doing anything about hunger, is over a billion dollars. The plan rightfully identifies that charitable work can only temporarily fulfill a widening gap between food supply and food need thus suggesting more change is needed across all levels of human society to address the pervasive problem of food insecurity. Full Plates, Full Potential is a Maine-based initiative dedicated to alleviating child hunger in Maine. Among their activities, the organization helped pass a legislative document called the School Meals for All in 2021. They successfully advocated for full funding of the program in 2022. With this, they provided an avenue for schools to meet some of the hunger alleviation for families. They have also expanded a school fund titled the Local Foods Fund for the purchase of locally produced foods. In a later episode, we will take a look at food waste within the food production system. This has been New England Climate Conversations. Back to you, Owen. Now I'd like to discuss how climate change impacts water scarcity and droughts. Essentially, rising temperatures disrupt precipitation patterns and the entire water cycle, which leads to an increase in these water-related problems. Already, the number and duration of droughts has increased by 29% since 2000, as compared to the two previous decades. And currently, about 2 billion people worldwide don't have access to safe drinking water, according to to the United Nations. Roughly half of the world's population is experiencing severe water scarcity for at least part of the year. And these numbers are expected to increase, exacerbated by climate change and population growth. So how does climate change contribute to water scarcity and drought? Well, warmer temperatures increase evaporation, which reduces surface water and dries out soil and vegetation, making periods with low precipitation drier than they would be in cooler conditions. In fact, in the past 20 years, terrestrial water storage, that's the summation of all water on the land surface and in the subsurface, including soil moisture, snow, and ice, has dropped at a rate of about one centimeter per year. Climate change is also altering the timing of water availability. Warmer winter temperatures are causing less precipitation to fall as snow in the northern hemisphere. Even if the total annual precipitation remains the same, decreased snowpack can be a problem because many water management systems rely on spring snowpack melt. Some ecosystems also depend on snowmelt to supply cold water for species including salmon. Also, because snow is a reflective surface, having less of it can increase surface temperatures, which exacerbates the problem further. Some climate models find that warming increases precipitation variability, 
meaning that there will be more periods of both extreme precipitation excuse me, and drought. This creates the need for expanded water storage during drought years and increased risk of flooding and dam failure during periods of high precipitation. Climate change is making certain regions drier as well. For example, the southwestern United States has already seen a decrease in annual precipitation since the beginning of the 20th century, and that trend is expected to continue. Estimates of future changes in seasonal or annual precipitation in a particular location are less certain than estimates of future warming and are active areas of research. However, on the global scale, scientists are confident that relatively wet places, such as the tropics and higher latitudes, will get wetter while relatively dry places in the subtropics, where most deserts are located, will become even drier. In some areas, droughts can continue as a result of a cycle in which very dry soils and diminished plant cover absorb more solar radiation and heat up, encouraging the formation of high-pressure systems, which further suppress rainfall, leaving an already dry area to become even drier. The problem of water scarcity will increase considerably in the coming decades. The global urban population facing water scarcity is projected to double from 930 million in 2016 to between 1.7 and 2.4 billion people in 2050, according to a report published earlier this year by UNESCO, that's the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. While a shortage of clean drinking water is the most obvious and immediate threat to human health, this is only one of many potential consequences of water scarcity. Diminished flows in rivers and streams can increase the concentration of harmful pollutants. When waterways run dry, animals may be forced to seek out drinking water from places where people live, bringing with them any disease-carrying insects they host. Drought can increase the risk of wildfires and dust storms that may lead to pulmonary irritation. Having insufficient water for sanitation and handwashing also increases the spread of respiratory and gastrointestinal illnesses. Food safety can be affected too. When soils dry out and become compacted, it's more likely that rain will run off the surface and carry contaminants to crops instead of soaking into the ground. There are a number of ways to mitigate the problem of water scarcity, including protecting natural barriers to flooding, extreme weather events and erosion, harvesting rainwater in regions with uneven rainfall distribution, climate-smart agriculture practices such as drip irrigation, reducing post-harvest losses and food waste, and transforming waste into a source of nutrients or biofuels biogas, and reusing safely managed wastewater for irrigation and industrial and municipal purposes. Making use of these and other water use strategies will be necessary to minimize the damage caused by water stress going forward. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite social media platform and share it with your friends. Also, if there are any topics you would like us to cover in the future, feel free to reach out via social media or leave a comment on our YouTube channel. Join us next week when we'll be talking about walkability and public transportation in Down East Maine. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, since our interviewee was unable to make it this week, next week's episode will include an interview with Down East Community Partners Director of Housing Services, Dale Basher. Dale is a veteran in the construction industry and a member of the Maine Climate Council who has some valuable insights about the state of infrastructure in Down East Maine. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.